I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. It seems impossible to believe the Breast Cancer Research Foundation is 30 years old. It's a remarkable achievement, notable in longevity, progress, and breakthroughs, not just in terms of scientific discovery, but also in terms of approach. Any organization that lasts 30 years has its own definable personality. At the center of BCRF sits distinctive and defining traits, a connection between the clinic and the lab, global reach, and perhaps most importantly, a collaborative spirit that is rare in nearly any endeavor or business. This is the approach that has led to BCRF's 30 years of progress. And who better to discuss those 30 years? how it started, what has occurred, and importantly, what's next, than Dr. Larry Norton, BCRF co-founder and its founding scientific director. Dr. Norton was there at the beginning, literally, as you will hear, at the kitchen table with BCRF founder Evelyn Lauder in 1993. I am certain you will find inspiration, learn, and perhaps even shed a tear from this conversation. More about Dr. Norton. Well, frankly, there's too much, so we'll stick with some highlights. Dr. Norton is Senior Vice President in the Office of the President and Medical Director of the Evelyn H. Lauder Breast Center at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's also a Professor of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Norton has dedicated his life to the eradication of cancer by activities in medical care, laboratory and clinical research, advocacy, and government. He was a U.S. presidential appointee to the National Cancer Advisory Board. He served as president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology and subsequently chair of the ASCO Foundation, now the Conquer Cancer Foundation. He has served on or chaired numerous committees of the National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health, and the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences. Dr. Norton is also involved in collaborations with BCRF investigators on projects aimed at improving treatments in breast cancer and advancing our understanding of metastatic breast cancer. Most notable of these, as you'll hear in this conversation, is the Mathematical Oncology Initiative. For his work, Dr. Norton has received many honors, including election to Phi Beta Kappa and Alpha Omega Alpha, and recognition from innumerable leading cancer organizations and groups in multiple countries. In 2021, Dr. Norton was elected to one of the nation's most prestigious honorary societies, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Norton has been a BCRF investigator since 1994. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Larry Norton. Dr. Norton, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's start with the topic of time. BCRF is celebrating its 30th year anniversary. What does 30 years of progress represent? 
And it's almost unrecognizable. When I think about where we were with breast cancer 30 years ago and where we are now, it's, it's just been remarkable, the advances. And it's not just in one thing, it's, it's across the board, which is actually one of the key parts of the philosophy of the BCRF is to work across the board, not on any specific one topic, putting all our eggs in one basket. Better diagnostics, better prognostication, better medical therapy, better surgical therapy, better radiation therapy, and most important, a better understanding of the disease. And not just the biological understanding of the disease, which is obviously key. What are the molecules that make cancers cancerous? What are the changes in the DNA? We call them mutations and other DNA changes and RNAs and proteins and other things that we can sort of measure. But the social impact of breast cancer and what we can do to try to ameliorate some of those aspects as well. Survivorship issues after you've gotten treated for breast cancer and cancer has gone away. What are the issues that are affecting you in terms of your return to normal life, to normal activities? Across the board, there have been really major, major advances. And I must say, I'm very, very pleased to report that the vast majority, if not all, of the significant advances that have happened have in one way or another involved one or more BCRF investigators. You and Evelyn Lauder started the Breast Cancer Research Foundation three decades ago. What motivated you to make it a reality? What really happened is that she and her husband, Leonard, were very involved with building our first breast center, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, which was also a great innovation. It had not been done before, the idea of a freestanding breast center where patients could be taken care of comprehensively and not have to go from doctor's office to doctor's office and gather opinions and go someplace for a mammogram and someplace else for something, some of the tests and go someplace else for treatment. But the idea of putting it all together for the convenience of the patient, which was really based on her experience in business and basically the department store idea, the concept of you build the store around the customer, you don't necessarily have the customer searching to find the things that they want. And that was spectacularly successful, so much so that we later on built a much bigger center, a freestanding building. I told the, the first center was the first time in Morrison Kettering actually had a center for care that was not in its main campus, was not in its main hospital. And that has been a remarkably successful innovation copied throughout the world. But when we did that, we realized that there were other changes that had to be made. And so we met in her kitchen, beautiful view of Park <laughs> Avenue, over tea, I think it was Darjeeling tea and said, you know, we have a little bit of money left over, you know, we can potentially raise some more money. What else is needed, you know, having started this great experiment? And I said, there's another experiment that really should be started. And that was 30 years ago was the dawn of the really molecular understanding we call molecular biology, the molecular understanding of cancer in general and breast cancer in particular. And I was part of a community of great doctors that knew how to take care of patients really well with all the available knowledge that we had at our disposal at that time but also clinical investigators that we were able to do studies and a well-oiled operation funded by the federal government largely in those days to do clinical studies. But there was a disconnect between what was happening in the laboratories and what was happening in the clinic. We were not necessarily testing the really exciting things that we were discovering in the laboratory. So we decided that what would really work well or as an experiment to try is to create an organization, a foundation that could bring together the very best scientists who are studying breast cancer, the very best doctors who knew how to take care of breast cancer and clinical investigators and, and see if they could form a community and work together to understand cancer better and improve cancer therapy. So it was an experiment, and she decided that she was going to have a dinner party in her home a few steps away from her kitchen and invite some of her friends. I would invite some really superb colleagues who were doing this kind of cancer research, both in the laboratory and the clinic. We'd get to know each other, we'd raise some money, and we'd see what would happen next. And what's happened next has really been remarkable. Our BCRF is the largest non-governmental funder of breast cancer research in the world at the present time, and we really have a global impact all throughout the world in this regard. 
and has grown into this extraordinary activity where we find the best investigators. And regardless of their age, we like to have young investigators and older investigators, accomplished investigators, often regardless of the topic they're studying, as long as we know that it's an important topic. Because science is always changing. And you can't say, well, over the next five years, I'm going to study this. Because, you know, six months after that or a year after that, this might have changed and you want to be able to move off in different directions. Part of this was based on the fact that she and I were both very immersed in the arts, supporting the arts. And arts grant-making organizations were different then and still are different than many science-oriented organizations. Many science-oriented organizations have a competitive grant process by which people send in applications and they're carefully reviewed and decisions are made. Arts organizations often have a panel that is very knowledgeable about the field, goes to a lot of performances, go to a lot of museums, listen to a lot of music, know what's going on, and then seek out the best opportunities for funding to be able to make advances. So we put together a small, in those days, has grown to be a much larger scientific advisory board of real luminaries in the field with a very broad expertise in all of cancer, biology and medicine and social aspects of medicine, diversity and equity issues in the whole spectrum. And we seek out projects. We seek out individuals. And I would also emphasize that something that makes us different than many other organizations is that we find the best individuals and we fund them. We ask them to give us a proposal of what to do. But the grant is not necessarily for that particular project because that project may change. We fund the artists. You know, you go to Picasso and say, you're a great artist, you know, do some great art. We go to great scientists, clinical scientists, laboratory scientists, and we say, do great work. They report to us. We have a very, very strenuous process of review of the work. Along with freedom comes accountability in that regard. And it's really worked remarkably well, as I said. So many major advances, so much of what we are now accomplishing in breast cancer can be traced to our investigators, but also our style of giving grants and of finding the best science and of moving it forward. I have the great honor of having these conversations with BCRF scientists, researchers every month. And the major themes that you just touched on come across in every one of those conversations. The translational aspect of medicine, the connection between the clinic and the lab, so many of your researchers with whom I speak talk about that. The global nature of what occurs, the collaborative approach. Everyone talks about the collaborative approach. And I didn't know that part. And I've had the privilege of talking with you before. I didn't know that part about you and Evelyn Lauder and the arts connection. And it makes total sense because the creativity that the scientists with whom you are connected, the creativity that they apply, it's exactly as you described. They feel like it's them that BCRF is investing in. And yes, with responsibility comes accountability. With freedom, you had said, comes accountability. Mm -hmm. They feel it. But the major themes that you just talked about, which I guess were created you know, right. figuratively on the back of a napkin, you know, <laughs> drinking Darjeeling tea 30 years ago, they are solid today. What you're saying, Chris, is so important because, first of all, number one, that they're feeling it. And often when we bring in new grantees, they're not used to that. It takes them a while to get used to that. They, they are not having, used to it. They, they are used not having used specific to aims and they have to accomplish their specific aims and whatever too. So they're not used to that. The other part of it is when they are grantees for a while and doing this good work, they relax in terms of their collaborations with their colleagues. And this is something very important. Other granting mechanisms create a competition. It's a gladiatorial combat where if you have a great idea and you share a great idea, your colleague may apply for a grant and that a great idea and you may be denied because somebody else already has a grant of that idea. And it all goes back to something that at that meeting with Evelyn in her kitchen, with Leonard walking by and saying, gee, it sounds great, I'm in. All right. With, <laughs> with that meeting, she said, you know, Larry, I've worked around creative people all my life. That's mm. what we do. We create things. 
And they need two things. They need freedom and they need security. The freedom to actually follow their most intriguing ideas and their most inventive ideas. And the security to know that if they do good work and it doesn't work out, that they're not going to lose their job. And very often people don't feel that freedom. They have a job to do and they do it. And very often they feel insecure is that, my goodness, I want to study, you know, molecule X. And if molecule X doesn't work out, I'm not going to be able to get my grant renewed. And we're not like that. If they do high quality work and they come up with a different answer, including a negative answer that they weren't expecting, that we weren't expecting, it doesn't mean that they're not a good investigator. You have to take chances. You have to swing the bat a lot of times to hit a home run. That is really very much an intrinsic part of our community, that feeling. And the very fact that our investigators feel that and they acknowledge it and they speak to you about it is really heartwarming because that's really what we're all about. They do. And it comes across in every conversation. I'm curious, just in listening to you, thinking about the last 30 years, I want to get into it in a moment a little bit about today and tomorrow. Listening to you describe the impact on the community over the last 30 years, the growth of BCRF over the last 30 years, right. the way that it's affected scientists, and then, of course, the way it's affected patients and families and people who think and have to worry about this. You may not appreciate the question, but I feel <laughs> I must ask it. Um, what about best. you? <laughs> what, oh, no. Yeah, I apologize <laughs> for that. Um, yeah. What has the journey <laughs> meant for you? It's been exhilarating and it's been wonderful in every aspect. I've always said that the favorite part of my job is training the next generation. You know, I have an army of fellows and other people that I've been in contact with over the years who've gone on to do really marvelous, wonderful work. That's the thing that really is the most exciting thing to me. But that also extends to colleagues, frankly, you know, is that, uh, you know, you can be a mentor to your trainees, but also you have a relationship with your colleagues and that you can actually help them and influence them in a positive way to do the kinds of things that are important for them to do because their life mission is also to make advance against cancer. That's been really very profoundly exciting. And, and colleagues come up to me all the time and speak to me all the time and say, listen, you know, I've got a major paper that we're publishing in a major journal and it's going to really change the way we practice medicine. And we owe it all to BCRF funding. If you didn't fund me with this idea, I never could have gotten this funded in any other way. It was just too new an idea, you know, and that led to this advance, led to another advance, another advance, and it went on to do wonderful things. So, I mean, there's nothing really more heartwarming than that. Another aspect of it is actually personal. I've learned so much from my contact with my colleagues, you know, mm. and learned so much in terms of science that's influenced my own science, my own way of moving forward. I'm going to give you a very concrete example of that is that I'm involved in a lot of areas of science, but one of them is mathematics. My original background was mathematics. You know, music and math were the things that I thought I was going to do with my life, you know, and then I ended up doing what I'm doing now by the way life works with its long winding road. And I realized from looking at our program that there were mathematical insights that could be applied to the problem in addition to biochemical insights and other areas of science that we know are really very relevant. So uh, with the support of the Simons Foundation through BCRF, we've established something called the Mathematical Oncology Initiative. And that's been extraordinarily productive in general, but also for myself, for my own personal growth, because it's put me in contact with extraordinary mathematicians who are basic mathematicians often who don't do applied work. They just do work on theoretical mathematics, but they're very excited by the opportunities. And we've made very significant advances in, in that regard in terms of understanding biology, picking who's going to respond to immunotherapy, being able to tell prognosis of a breast cancer patient just from looking at a microscope slide and just analyzing that using machine learning and artificial intelligence and other tools that have developed augment mathematics. The impetus came from my contacts with my colleagues through the BCRF, as well as my wonderful colleagues at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. You know, we started a program in understanding the molecular biology of breast cancer. 
called the Founders Fund after Evelyn. You know, when we tragically lost her, Leonard stepped up to the plate and auctioned off her high-level jewelry and made other contributions. Many other friends came in and we established this Founders Fund. The ideology of that is very interesting, is that BCRF for many years has been supporting an annual meeting between the breast cancer clinical investigators in the United States, North America, and the breast cancer clinical investigators originally in Europe and now internationally, something called the Breast International Group, and we formed it together. We used to meet annually one year in Brussels, one year in Chicago at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, and now we've been meeting largely in Chicago. But at one of those meetings in particular in Brussels, we had presentations of people who were studying the molecular biology of breast cancer. What are the changes in DNA, RNA proteins? What are the molecular changes that underlie breast cancer? And Martin Picard, great European investigator now on our scientific advisory board, and I were in the back of the room. We noticed that all of the studies were breast cancer coming from the breast, tumors coming from the breast. Mm -hmm. But that's not the dangerous part of breast cancer. The dangerous part of breast cancer is metastasis, the spread of the breast cancer cells to other parts of the body. And we weren't studying that. The analogy that popped into my mind at the time is like trying to figure out why the cows have left the barn by only studying the cows who are still in the barn. Mm -hmm. We will get the exact wrong answer. The cows that are still in the barn are there for a very good reason. The ones that are left are the ones that you want to know about, the cells that spread to other parts of the body. And so the Founders Fund was focused on something called the Aurora Projects. There's one Aurora Project in Europe and one Aurora Project in the United States, both of which have produced extraordinary discoveries about the molecular characteristics of breast cancer, including the discovery, independent discoveries, but coordinated independent discoveries on both sides of the Atlantic, that the immune system has a profound effect on cancer metastasis which has given impetus to studying immunotherapies for breast cancer and a better understanding of that. And in the analysis of all that data, I realized that mathematicians could also get into this in a novel way that had not been done before. And so we not only have this mathematical oncology initiative and not only have the Aurora projects, but we can marry them together in a productive way. I can't think of any other organizational system that could actually do this, that could fund international trials involving most of the stellar leaders in molecular biology of breast cancer together, mathematicians who've never had a practical application in, in all their years of work, starting to work on the cancer problem, and then being able to bring them together to be able to work together on this kind of problem. This can only come from a cohesive community. It really illustrates the wisdom and the insight and the foresight of Evelyn in our kitchen conversation in terms of how to actually make this happen. You find the best people, you give them freedom, you give them security, and magic happens, and that's what's happening in BCRF. Well, it's not surprising to me that you raised the Mathematical Oncology Group, the initiative. As I was researching for this conversation and was reading more about that, it absolutely felt to me like the proof was in the pudding that you were executing in your own activities exactly the vision that you describe. Additionally, listening to you right now, the importance of the Founders Fund and the importance and challenge is too light of a word of metastasis. It is written on your page on the site, no topic in cancer medicine is more pressing and no opportunity more significant than understanding and stopping metastasis. Is that at the center of it? The dangerous part of cancer is metastasis. It's not the lump in the breast. I mean, the lump in the breast is a big pimple. I mean, you can remove it. It's, that's not the problem. The problem is the cancer cells can spread to other parts of your body. You can go to your bones and your liver and your lungs and your brain. I mean, that's the lethal part of cancer. So that's actually the essence of it all. But it starts with the lump in the breast. 
So yes, we have to study metastasis, which we're doing, which a large bulk of our research is studying the biology of metastasis and ways of interfering with it. And essentially everything we do therapeutically is one way or the other, either treating metastasis or preventing metastasis. But there's a flip side of this as well, which is that if the lump in the breast didn't happen in the first place, then you wouldn't have the opportunity for metastasis. So we have to study cancer prevention as well. We have a cancer prevention initiative that's going on right now that is also extraordinary with extraordinary individuals because you know the best way to stop the metastasis is to stop the lump in the first place. And so that part of it as well. You see, the whole concept is you've got to study the whole thing. Very often when I give lectures, people say, well, what's the most important thing that we should be studying? You know, and then, and I, I say, I'm, I will answer your question, but you've got to answer your question first. Tell me what's the most important part of the airplane. Is it the left wing? Is it the right wing? Is it the engine that makes it go forward? Is it the pilot? Is it the navigation system? The fact is you need all of those pieces and you need them all to work together. The most important part of cancer research is not let's put all our eggs in the basket of immunotherapy and all our eggs in the basket of better surgery or better radiation or understanding biology. The important thing is to build the whole airplane and to make all the pieces work together. So it doesn't bother me at all that I study metastasis and try to cure cancer once it's there, you know, and once it's developed into metastasis. It doesn't bother me at all that I can do that at the same time as I give drugs at the time of the diagnosis of the breast cancer to prevent metastases, which is what adjuvant therapy is all about. And also that we're studying how to stop the cancer in the first place. You've got to study the whole spectrum. The other thing that any scientist will tell you, things you learn in one area help you in another area. So we use breast cancers that are estrogen receptor positive or hormone responsive that have spread to other parts of the body. We use a whole variety of hormone-based therapies to actually treat such patients to extend their life. And we're getting better and better at that because we've discovered mechanisms of resistance to hormone therapy and we can give drugs to overcome that resistance. And so we made huge advances in that, that area and BCRF investigators have been all over that topic. But those same drugs could be used early on to prevent the cancer from metastasizing in the first place in the adjuvant setting after the lump is discovered. And those same class of drugs could be used to prevent breast cancer in the first place, which is something we discovered. So studying one category of the disease helps you understand and helps you manage other categories of the disease. And so that is why it's so very important to really have a comprehensive package of grantees and of programs so that we can learn from each other. 100%. And that also comes across. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with BCRF investigators who have identified lessons or hints or glimmers from colon cancer or some other type oh, of cancer yes, that yes, then yes, get yes. applied. That comes across as well. What a beautiful, powerful metaphor, the airplane. That also comes across, not only in the scientific, medical, biological component, but also the emotional, psychological, patient care component. And the way that those intertwine also becomes a very, very powerful lesson. I'm interested in your views on items today. The Global Data Hub, for example, yes. that BCRF created, first of its right. kind, to transform how breast cancer researchers access and share data. Talk to me about the Global Data Hub. And right. maybe if you could talk to me as well, is there anything today current in terms of technologies or evolutions? Of course, something like for lay people like me, we hear a lot about AI. And I had a recent conversation about AI and breast cancer, BCRF right, conversation. Right. Tell me if you would about some of the things that capture your attention today and the Global Data Hub. It's the evolution of the BCRF concept. The evolution of the BCRF concept is getting people to work together. But one of the most important things that we've learned over the last several decades while we've been doing this is the power of big data. 
the power of having very large data sets that can be scrutinized by a variety of tools, including the emergent modern tools of mathematics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks, and so on, to be able to actually have insights. You know, on the AI area, this is as dramatic a change in the human brain, the ability of human intelligence to uh, interrogate the world and learn from the world as anything that's happened previous to this. And let me explain mm. what I mean by that. Yeah, it's a powerful um, statement. Um, the scientific method was a great intellectual breakthrough. The scientific method is largely you formulate a hypothesis, you design an experiment, you do the experiment, you see the results of the experiment, it modifies, confirms, or denies, or modifies your hypothesis, you go on to the next experiment. It's all about testing. I'm frequently asked, Larry, you know, do you believe in XYZ? And I say, I believe in certain things. I believe Mozart was a great composer. I believe in God. I believe in certain things. When it comes to science, I have no belief. It's all about the data. It's all about the evidence. It's not a belief system. And that's a dramatically different way of looking at the world when you really think about it, okay, is, is that it's got to be based on evidence and evidence that's based on prospective experiments. So we've built this incredible world where science has changed our world in so many wonderful ways because of the scientific method. Now, we have a different way of actually approaching questions. What I said before is you make observations of nature and you generate a hypothesis and then you generate experiments to test or, or refute your hypothesis. Now we could actually look at the world, observations, data in a different way, and the data can generate the hypothesis in ways that we could not creatively come up with. It can look at the data and it could say, it looks to us like the machine talking to me, the machine is saying to me that there are certain changes that we see here that are connected to other changes certain ways that the cells look under the microscope that can tell you whether this patient's going to be cured or not, for example. And then we can start to then develop hypotheses that are derived from the actual analysis of the data rather than using our imaginations only to come up with, uh, you know, with those hypotheses. So this is really a revolution of thought and where this is going to lead in the big picture, I mean, none of us really know. And it's a very powerful tool and therefore it has to be applied very, very carefully moving forward. But that means that we have to have the data to interrogate. And now we have these astonishing investigators from all over the world. And by the way, a lot of people who are not BCRF investigators are interested in getting in on this data hub, where all this data can be put in a way that can be interrogated, that can be looked at by qualified individuals. We can be very careful about who can actually look at the data and who can analyze the data. We're going to have careful controls on that, so it couldn't be released just widely. Uh, can be released to qualified people from all over the world to actually look at the data and using modern tools of big data science actually derive hypotheses, things that we couldn't have thought of before. A lay example of this is look how long it took us to figure out that cigarette smoking caused lung cancer. Decades, centuries. Yes. Where, you know, we didn't have a hypothesis. Cigarette smoking, tobacco smoking was ubiquitous. Everybody did it. You know, it was all over the place. There was no hypothesis. It would take machine learning seconds to figure that out and come up with a hypothesis. We've observed that there's more lung cancer in people who smoke by looking at big data, all right? Maybe you should look at the impact of cigarette smoke on the lungs, the machine would, would say to us, all right? And then we would do a hypothesis and then we would design experiments and then the usual methods of science would get us to that answer. There may be a lot of other things that are out there that we just haven't thought of yet, but that the data could speak to us and tell us this about the molecules we're studying, about social factors, the impact of stress, chronic stress, you know, on our environment 
the impact of social inequities, which is something else that we're studying on body's physiology and how that physiology could actually impact the generation of cancer or prognosis once you have cancer. Those are the kinds of things that we can actually study now by actually interrogating the data once we accumulate that data. So that's the underlying philosophy of what we're trying to do with the Data Hub. And I, I think it's going to be a transformative step in understanding not just breast cancer, but all cancers and maybe other diseases. We're finding connections now between cardiovascular heart disease, clogged coronary arteries, and cancer mm. through mutations that occur not in cancer cells, but in white blood cells. Normal white blood cells that look normal under the microscope may have mutations in them that predispose us not only to cancer, but predispose us to heart disease. And that's the kind of thing that can come out of this kinds of research. So yes, we're studying breast cancer. Yes, we're studying all cancer, but yes, we're studying all diseases. What a fascinating way to frame it, because it reminded us all earlier that if you want to understand why cows are leaving the barn, right. you need to look at the cows who have left the barn, not the cows right. who remained in there. The importance of looking at, quote, the right thing or asking the right question. What you're describing now right, right. is the first ever, perhaps, opportunity to, in milliseconds, not just ask the right question, but ask the new question. Yes. All of a sudden, the, the ability to, to yes. think of yes. the new thing. What a fascinating framing. Secondly, you understand, doctor, that I am not here to argue with you. I mean, you're the last person <laughs> I want to pick a fight with. However, in terms of Mozart's excellence being connected to a belief, my hypothesis is we could find empirical evidence of his greatness. Well, it's, yeah, well, we could talk about that. That's a whole other topic. The thing is, is we, we, we can find evidence that he's popular. We can find evidence that he's played often. We can find evidence that people appreciate him. But greatness is a term that's really a little bit, little bit harder to define in that yes, regard. Too. Yes. And so that gets into a little bit of a belief system. And so that's what I mean. A lot of wonderful things in life belong to belief. There's no question about it. When it comes to science, I don't have any confidence in belief. I've got confidence in data. I appreciate the distinction. And uh, yes, I look forward to our next podcast series on Mozart and greatness. But what you're describing right there also aligns with a question that I found myself thinking about vis-a-vis -vis you and your role as I was thinking about what you do in 30 years of BCRF and the things that you have faced surely and that you think about. And I found myself thinking how you likely sit at the intersection of eternal optimism and frequent frustration. What I mean is, on the one hand, you have this front row seat that you've described in this conversation mm. to some of the most extraordinary, hopeful, and optimistic scientific advancements in the world. I mean, it's nothing short of incredible what breast cancer researchers do and the possibilities that exist. You've described it. And at the same time, you know from the translational aspect of what you and others do, that what happens in the lab and what happens in the clinic and the realities of what happens in the clinic, right. every day new people are diagnosed with breast cancer. How do you balance that and, daily and, hope? And, and, and some are dying of breast cancer too. And some are dying. How do you balance I, the hope I, I, and frustration? I, I was interviewed by a great interviewer many years ago from the New York Times, and she asked me that same question. And I hadn't really thought of it before then, but I answered her thinking about it. And it's the same answer. It's really what motivates me and really what drives me. And why I've given up other parts of my life, like music, for example, you know, to focus in on this particular topic is that as a cancer doctor, I take care of people and I provide the very best care that can be provided for them with my colleagues, my wonderful colleagues over Morrison Kettering and colleagues throughout the world and collaborators. And sometimes it doesn't turn out good. And I carry those memories with me through every minute of my life. And I owe it to them that their child will not die of cancer. That's really what motivates me every day. Yes, I didn't save their life, 
But what I can do is I can work harder, make more discoveries, apply the very best of my abilities and motivate and organize and support, financially support the great investigators in the world so that the people that they love and their offspring never have to worry about this disease. That's my obligation to those individuals, right? And I can't help them anymore, but I can help others that they care about, that I care about. And that's really what drives me. If you want to put your finger on exactly the thing that drives me, that's really what drives me. The successes drive me also. I mean, the great glory of those successes that drive me. Many, many years ago when there was an experimental therapy, that's now a standard therapy that dramatically saved somebody's life, a new drug where she was really sick and she was clearly not going to make it. And it was an experimental drug and we gave her experimental drug. It's now a standard drug and she had a fantastic, remarkable response. And I knew her as a patient. I was taking my little daughter to a play date. It was my job to take my daughter to a play date. And I knew the name of the child. I didn't even know, know anything further. And, you know, I, I took my daughter by the hand, and, you know, knocked on the door, you know, there too, and the door opened and the other child ran out and they hugged and they went to play. And I looked up and it was that woman. It was her child, the woman whose life I've saved. And now my daughter is playing with her daughter. We both broke down in tears, you know, big, wet, sloppy tears and both hugged each other at that moment because she had that same reaction to me. You know, here's a dad bringing a kid from the school to like, kill my play. So the successes really are there as well. I am driven to make it universal, and my colleagues are driven to make it universal. And for the ones that we didn't save the life or we didn't prevent the cancer, whatever it is, I owe it to them to do better. And that's really what drives me personally. It's a very good question. Thank you for that. It's a very, very, very powerful answer. And I can only imagine, I'm playing the film in my mind, of your patient who is now in that instant not just a patient, she's a friend, a mother, a human being, a person in your life and in your child's life. And the eyes locking, there must have been a lot of tears. It does lead to a wonderful way to close because you've taken a conversation that is thinking about 30 years of history and how meaningful it is that what motivates you isn't the 30 years of history, but is tomorrow. And so within the incredible pride and gratitude that so many people have for everything that's been accomplished, the lives that have been saved and the therapies that have been discovered and the care that has been personalized. We didn't even really get to talk about the way that the personalization of care, how meaningful that has become. Yet at the same time, everyone shares your well-meaning impatience and wants to know what's next in your mind for BCRF, what's next to breast cancer? Well, look, we have a lot more work to do, as you said. That's what really motivates us and really move forward. Right now, we, as I say, we have a very broad category of, of research, and we want to provide that. We'd like to give more grants. We'd like to give more individual grants. We'd like to get involved in more projects moving forward. We have an extraordinary collaborative project with the pharmaceutical industry, with the support of the industry financially and with their medicines, that we could have our investigators design clinical studies to move forward. I'd like to see that expand. You mentioned the data hub. We'd like that to be bigger. We'd like that to be broader. More connections with other activities that are going on in the cancer space, things that are happening in the U.S., the moonshot in the U.S. is equivalent activity in Europe, more connections in that regard, basically to carry the philosophy forward, to keep our eyes open for the next big things that are happening. I mean, there's a particularly fascinating kind of evolving view of cancer as not just being a disease of the cancer cell, but a disease of the cancer cell and its relationship to what we call its microenvironment. You could have the worst bank robber in the world, but if the bank robber doesn't have, you know, a getaway car and doesn't have an accomplice in the bank and doesn't have all these things, they're not going to be able to do any kind of damage. The cancer cell by itself is an abnormal cell. 
but there are normal or so-called normal cells in the vicinity. We think they're normal, they're also helpers and are very important. And that's why cancer may spread, let's say, to the liver, you know, and not to the brain, you know, an individual is because there's something about the liver that's supporting the growth of that cancer cell. And so studying the microenvironment is an extremely important topic, and we have every intention of expanding our activities in that regard as well. And to keep our eyes open and to move forward. The plan is to react to the best science of the moment, of the week, of the month, of the year, and move things forward. There's much more to be discovered. I personally think that, and many of my colleagues do also, that manipulating the immune system in a productive way is we're just beginning, we're just touching the surface of our ability to use the white blood cells in our own bodies to stop the growth of cancer, prevent cancer from occurring, and help us treat cancer. So the work in that regard is moving forward. We can take white cells out of the body and manipulate them, put them back into the body. That's another area with cancer killing capacity. That's something else that we're extremely interested in. I can go on and on. I can name many other areas, but that's really what it's about. It's the philosophy that's central, and then it branches out into specifics. And that's what I'd like to see BCRF do. We could be bigger. I would like to see us have the opportunity to support more investigators. We have many more investigators who we want to support than we can support. And that's also really one of our initiatives moving forward. But the future is bright. That's the important thing to emphasize. You know, There will be a day that we'll look back and say that there was such a disease once as cancer. And it was a terrible disease and it caused a lot of devastation and a lot of premature deaths and hurt a lot of people. And now that's part of history because of mm -hmm. uh, what we're going to accomplish. And that's what we have to keep our eyes on and keep our minds on. This can happen really in your own life. I mean, I gave you the story of that individual patient. While you're undergoing therapy or while you're worried about breast cancer, or whatever, things are happening right now that could influence you and that could be advantageous to you. So it's not just about the far off future, it's about the immediate future. Results of studies coming through, I didn't even mention the Translational Breast Cancer Research Consortium, which yes. is a large cooperative group of investigators in the country, supported by BCRF and by Susan G. Komen jointly, you know, in terms of, uh, again, collaboration. Collaboration is key to that and moving things forward, you know, in that regard to be able to do our studies. I sit on the steering committee of that, and I'm seeing new studies come out all the time with major advances, things that could help individuals. We have to work hard. We have to remember the past, never forget it. But we also have to work hard with an optimistic view of the future because we are going to accomplish breast cancer and all cancers. Our job is to make that happen as fast as possible. It is clear from your conversation. It's clear from the conversations that I get to have with other BCRF scientists. And I very much look forward to having the conversation with you looking back at what was cancer and getting to discuss how that was put behind thank everyone. Dr. Norton, thank you. Thank you for what you do and for what BCRF and all BCRF researchers around the world do every day. And thank you for this opportunity. That was my conversation with Dr. Larry Norton. My thanks to Dr. Norton for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.